The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. You can live out your MasterChef dream. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. (laughs) Who needs sleep anyway? Our first tale tonight comes from author Michael Whitehouse, entitled A Christmas Feast. He first suspected that they were going to eat him when he noticed the distinct lack of yuletide smells. It wasn't perhaps conscious thought, at least not one which had been fully realized, but there was a clear, growing uneasiness within him. Somehow he just knew. Surely if a family invited you for Christmas dinner, the house would be filled with the wonderful aromas associated with that annual feast. Succulent roast turkey, honey-glazed vegetables, perhaps the fumes of mulled wine or a brandy-covered Christmas pudding. But no, all of these were absent. Yet the table was set. It was a particularly bleak Christmas, and while snow was often welcome at that festive time of year, the penetrating cold and frost 
which seemed to sabotage both homes and their residents' bodies, was not. The temperature had plummeted on the 7th, and there had been little sign of any forthcoming reprieve. Families attempted, as best they could, to reach one another, but for many it was to be a lonely Christmas day. Travel, especially for the elderly, was almost impossible for fear of slipping on the ice. One fall was all it would take for a broken hip or shoulder, and for the more fragile individuals amongst them, recovering from such an injury was not an easy task. Certainly not as easy as it would be for those of a younger vintage. The Cardinal family had taken pity on an elderly gentleman who had recently moved into the neighborhood only a few streets away. They were of an upstanding stock and took part in a local help home initiative, spending time with the old and vulnerable. Everyone knew and loved them. Timmy was the youngest, a boy of only five or six. He was a child whom all looked upon with great adoration, never complaining, never causing trouble, always adorable. And his ten-year-old sister, Camilla, was equally as admired. They were both a testament to the caring and nurturing parenting skills of Brad and Lucy Cardinal. Each year, as the cold winter drew in, the Cardinal family were admired for their dedication and commitment to those around them, their passion, almost zeal for helping those who were less fortunate. But behind the smiles and the skin-deep facade of that of a loving family lurked a far more sinister purpose. They had a tradition each year, a way to reward themselves for their kindness and generosity, one which stemmed back through many previous generations of the Cardinal family. Each Christmas, they would invite a guest for dinner who would be welcomed with open arms into their home, sat down at a beautifully set table, provided with humorous and enjoyable Christmas conversation. And then, by the light of the roaring fire, the guest would be stabbed to death and eaten gratefully. They all reveled in the old tradition, with Timmy looking forward to it the most. He had a ferocious appetite and a waistline to match it, but children do get so wrapped up in the anticipation of a family Christmas, and his parents were delighted to see a growing boy fill his belly. Camilla was of a more quiet disposition than her stout little brother, slight of figure with a pallid complexion, which was a reminder all of her mother. But make no mistake, she adored eating with the family and could render anyone silent with a sharp, cold insult. Brad was the local police chief for the area, so covering up their annual feast was quite the cinch, while Lucy was, shall we say, a relation of sorts and was entirely enthusiastic about maintaining the Christmas tradition. Their guests were invariably those without family and often of a ripe old age, forgotten by society left to wither in their isolated little houses. Brad explained to the children yearly that it was almost a kindness to put the victims out of their slowly increasing misery, and besides, 
When they did eventually die, they would be shoved into a box in the ground or roasted into ashes. What a waste of good meat. This year, Timmy and Camilla were especially excited. It was all their mother could do to calm their nerves, but on that Christmas Eve it was nearly impossible, for they knew the special treat they were in for the following day. The Cardinals were hosting a most special guest. His name was Sergei Marrero, and he hailed from Eastern Europe. They had never had foreign meat before, and the very idea of tearing into some delicious, exotic muscle and fat made this year's feast something to really look forward to. They had met old man Marrero just a few weeks earlier when Brad had noticed the unusual name on his home help list. Each year, as Christmas approached, the volunteers at the local church would be given names and addresses of pensioners in the area who had no family and would be left quite alone over the holiday season. At that festive time of year, and worried that many of the frailer residents might succumb to the biting cold, church committee members would visit each of these lonely individuals and offer a friendly ear, a helping hand, and often some hearty food to the poorest of those on the list. The names would rarely change, but at least one person on that list would sadly pass away that year. Being an upstanding member of the community and a high-ranking police officer in the area, Ben would often inform the church that one of their flock had passed away, sadly. And with no friends or family known, he would concoct a lie which usually involved a long-lost son or daughter, appeared to take their sadly departed parent somewhere far away to be buried. That, or he would say that they had simply moved, having a bit of a deal with a local estate agent and solicitor's firm to throw the proceeds from any property sales their way. The family were not without influence. It was incredible how little people questioned this, but as the cardinals ensured that each Christmas meal was not an active member in the church or community, people just assumed that Ben knew best. This year the cardinals had been hoping to invite Lucy Rinridge around for her Christmas swan song, but unfortunately she had died during the summer. Ben had investigated and he suspected that an intruder had been inside the house with her at the time of her death, but it seemed as though the causes were natural. No, the family would just have to find someone different for dinner. And then the name appeared on the list. Sergei Morero, 86, slight emphysema, no family, knows no one in the area as he has only recently moved here. Perfect. Ben found Mr. Marrero to be an absolute delight. While he was obviously very frail, his mind was still sharp, and he regaled Ben with numerous colorful stories about the old country and the adventures he had while in the full bloom of youth. Of particular interest were his war stories, and Ben was thrilled to know that their main course would be that of an intelligent, well-traveled man even looked unlike any of the previous victims. He was quite tall, although slightly hunched with age, and with a long, crooked nose and intense stare, 
Ben fancied that, in his youth, Mareru would have been quite intimidating. His kind smile and obvious fragile frame, however, left Ben in no doubt that the kids would love him. They enjoyed eating those with character and a gentle disposition. He always enjoyed the meat more if it had a keen mind and was out of the ordinary, as the family religion, one which had managed to stay unseen yet influential throughout the centuries, stated that the eating of another human being would transmit some of its strengths to those whom devoured it. As with many of those who can only look into the past rather than into the future, Sergei Moreru enjoyed the company greatly, and was touched when Ben invited him to sit at his family's Christmas table. The old man was extremely frail and required the assistance of both Ben and Camilla to help him in and out of Ben's car and then into the house. His emphysema was particularly bad that day, as each step was accompanied by the wheezing, fluid-filled sounds of struggling lungs. Each room of the Cardinal home was draped in a multicolored selection of rather crass Christmas decorations, with numerous cards adorning every visible table and mantelpiece, showcasing just how popular Ben and his family really were. The table was beautifully laid, with a red cotton cloth resting underneath an elegant cream dining set. The old man found that the rest of Ben's family were just as pleasant and congenial as he was. Timmy and Camilla were kind and very well behaved for their age, helping the frail old man to his chair carefully and then waiting on him, topping up his drink as their mother and father busied themselves in the kitchen. Finally, Lucy appeared carrying a huge centerpiece plate. It was unusually large, and as she sat it in the middle of the table, empty and devoid of food, old man Marrero caught a look on Lucy's face. It was brief, and he immediately attempted to disregard it as a product of his imagination, but it unsettled him deeply. It was as if a private joke had passed between the eyes of Lucy and her children, a flicker of a grin, and not one of kindness or of Christmas spirit, but rather one resembling that of a conspiratorial bully, as if Sergei was the unwitting recipient of some unwholesome prank waiting to be ridiculed. Just as the unease began to diminish, Ben appeared with a large, jagged carving knife and a long, two-pronged fork which reminded Sergei more of a butcher's implement than that required to cut a decent-sized turkey, a turkey which became increasingly conspicuous by its absence. There they sat for over an hour, each member of the Cardinal family replenishing the old man's drink with enthusiasm and showing concern for every and each cough or moment of uncomfortable breathing experienced by their guest. But it was a strange concern. There they sat, gleefully, asking Marebra questions and then listening to the stories and answers which came about his life, where he had lived, how many battles he had fought in. But the interest and concern seemed to be distant somehow. It was only skin deep. Each time their guest mentioned the old country, those same conspiracy-laden glances were traded across the table, as if excited, not by the content of the stories, but rather by the simple fact that Mareru was a foreigner. 
The absence of not only food, but that of the mere mention of it was unsettling enough, but what was more perplexing was that Ben repeatedly stole looks toward an antique clock which sat on the mantelpiece above the fire, looks which were poorly hidden and betrayed their purpose. He was counting down the minutes to some event. While the old man had no idea what that event was, the certainty was apparent that it was not connected to anything cooking in the kitchen oven. Moreru knew that there was simply no food being roasted, grilled, or even cooled on a window ledge nearby. Whatever was being planned, it was not going to involve him eating a Christmas meal. It was Camilla who first stopped smiling first at his anecdotes and historical observations. She had ceased listening. No longer was she politely laughing at obvious jokes and the endearing sight of an old man repeating himself through forgetfulness. Camilla was simply staring, staring with those pinpoint cold, dark eyes, as a snake before a strike. Timothy was next to abandon the act as he began to grin menacingly at Sergey, as his hands gripped a small serrated steak knife intensely. The most alarming thing was that the focus of Timmy's stare was not on the old man's face, but his wrinkled neck. With one last glance at the clock, Ben ceased being jovial, attentive host, began to run his fingers along the huge carving knife in front of him, with a mixture of anger and lust upon his face. Sergei had seen many things in his time, but nothing as surprisingly strange and unnerving as this. Finally, when the clock began to chime... Lucy relinquished her false, endearing shell and exposed the cold-hearted and twisted personality which lay beneath. As the chimes slowly rang throughout the house, one by one, echoing and lonely and piercing in their symbolism, each of the cardinals rose up from their chairs, sharp, jagged knives in hand, and waited. The chime rang once, and they uttered an indecipherable phrase in unison. The chime rang twice, and they increased their cult-like chorus in ferocity and volume. The chime rang three times, and they stopped. All were silent, the house devoid of sound, Christmas spirit, and that of hope. The old man's wheezing grew in intensity as the uniquely bizarre sight of the twisted family about to dine dawned upon Sergey. The family then quietly and efficiently walked around the dining table and stood motionless, surrounding their guest. Just as the old man was about to inquire what was to become of him, the clock on the mantelpiece burst into life one final time. The chime was different from the others. It was sharper, somehow fouler, and echoed once and once only throughout the cardinal home. From behind, Lucy slit the old man's throat from ear to ear as Ben thrust his carving knife deep into Sergei's stomach. Both parents then removed their knives and stood back, watching with pride as Camilla cut and stabbed repeatedly while Timmy thrust his steak knife in and out of Mayorero's legs, neck, and arms. After a few minutes... The frenzy diminished as both children grew tired 
and with one last downward thrust, Timmy drove his steak knife so deeply into the old man's hand that it skewered it completely, embedding itself into the table on which the hand rested. The children now ran to their parents' collective embrace. They hugged and rejoiced in what was a fantastic Christmas game, and now could look forward to the delight to some succulent exotic meat. Arms wrapped around one another, they stared at their victim and began to laugh loudly, commenting on the old fool stories of times gone by, the war, and the old country. As they turned to each other once more, the laughter diminished and they looked into each other's rosy, blood-covered faces and it shared a family moment. This had been one of Ben's favorite sacrifices, but the laughter had not completely ceased. One person was still laughing loudly. Confusion turned to abject horror as the bizarre truth revealed itself. It was Mr. Mararu, sitting covered in blood, his head tilted back and the deep cut in his throat wide open. The dinner guest laughed loud and strong, a laugh which was both young and old. His head arched forward as he pulled Timmy's steak knife out of his hand, dropping it on the floor. Camilla screamed as Lucy hid behind Ben. What they thought to be a corpse now stared at them all as they had stared at it with a singular purpose. Timmy began to pee himself and cry as two previously retracted fangs cracked through the old man's upper gum, revealing a serrated and terrifying grin. As he rose to his feet, Lucy fainted, and with both hunched and age now gone, the cardinal's guest loomed tall and dark before them, his eyes piercing, telling tales of countries and decades and of centuries of existence. Sergei Marrero ate well that Christmas. The Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs, or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, 
and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Our final story for this evening is brought to you by author Christopher Mallory, entitled The Special Christmas Ornaments of Mr. Everett. I'll never forget the Christmas Eve blizzard of 09. I'd gone to town seeking the perfect gift for my wife, Lucy, and on my way home the snow had begun to come down hard. Instead of the interstate, I took the dark, lonely two-lane through the countryside. The snowflakes whisked past the windshield against the backdrop of a pitch-black sky, and the high beams faded to a dull glow below the horizon of the distant gray mountaintops. As I drove through the storm, the night's simple beauty seemed to draw me in until nothing else existed. Suddenly, the steering wheel began to vibrate and the car lurched off course. I snapped out of the trance just in time to veer to the right, doing my best not to overcorrect on the icy road. After a tense moment, where I was sure the car would slide into the ditch, the tires shifted from the rumble strip back onto the pavement, regaining traction once again. My heart pounded hard and fast, but my eyes were still tired from the hypnotic snow that seemed to be flying toward me instead of falling. I wound down the windows, hoping that the wind would restore my senses. It had been a close call, and I considered stopping until the snow let up, but that road was hazardous even without patches of black ice. Over the decades, too many people had been killed around that section of the pines, and I didn't want to be one of them. Not three years passed, my neighbor, Paul Vickers, swerved to avoid what was probably a deer and lost control of his truck. One of the deputies had found him the next morning, dead, of course. It was an instant, Chief Royce said to me, shaking his head. Paul had the same terrified expression etched into his face, as those dead hikers who spent a week lost up in the mountain pass. Like them, he knew he wouldn't make it out alive. I didn't tell him this, but I was glad Paul died. His neck had broken during the wreck, and he would have been a quadriplegic had he lived. Yes, it is a shame he suffered through the night, afraid and alone. But truth be told, maybe his neck wasn't the only reason I never shed a tear over his passing wasn't a nice guy, known for always starting fights down at Carol's pub, and when Carol would throw him out, he'd go home to beat on his old lady. More than once, the beating was bad enough to put her in the hospital. Good riddance if you ask me. But a year after that untimely demise, Jen Harper's little girl Susie died, too. The toddler had woken up in the middle of the night, and she must have seen the fresh blanket of snow then decided to go outside to play. People in town still whisper about that tragedy. They say the driver of the rig that crushed her skull must have been snow-blinded. 
He never stopped, just kept on trucking. I was at Carroll's when Chief Royce and Jake tracked the driver down. As soon as he heard that he'd killed little Susie Harper, he dropped to his knees and banged his fists to his forehead. I could smell the sour whiskey stinking on his breath. Hey, Sheriff, he cried, drool dripping from the corner of his mouth. You gotta believe me. I never saw her. I, I, uh, oh, God. Jake slapped on the cuffs and Chief Royce led him away. Later at the arraignment, the driver claimed he remembered hitting a bump of ice in the middle of the road, but not a child as if her body had been lying on the pavement long before the tires of the 18-wheeler did their work. Even though his version didn't add up, Judge Davis ruled it an accident, and almost everyone in town figured his excuse was some sort of mental block to protect himself for what he had done. I was skeptical, but Lucy had believed him. Ah, Lucy, I sighed, checking the dashboard clock. It had gotten late, and she was probably worried sick. Headlights appeared my rearview, and within a few moments, a pickup whipped past, honking at me. I shrugged. He probably thought I was some old man who didn't know how to drive. True, I'm old and a little more cautious than most folks. I wanted to get home quickly, but kept the speed well below the limit so that I could get home at all. I switched to the right lane and admired the snow-covered pines as I passed them by. The storm seemed to generate a peaceful serenity, an absolutely magical feeling that replaced the anxiety over the near accident. I'd driven through a lot of blizzards, but that night was different somehow. It was like experiencing lucid dream. In my bones, I knew that something special was going to happen. A Christmas miracle, like in those old black-and-white films. I took in another deep breath of the crisp night air, smelling the pines, and smiled. Perhaps it was the snow coming in through the window and melting on my face that had made my skin tingle. Sure is going to be a white Christmas, I said, then laughed. Despite the weather forecasts each year, it always snowed on Christmas in our little town. Turning around the bend by the abandoned Diego farm, a halo of white light from town stretched across the horizon. I yawned, exhausted from shopping in the city. All I wanted to do was climb into bed with Lucy and sleep. A moment later, I drove past the old cemetery, approaching Ian Thomas's little shack. Ian had surprised me by putting up decorations. He'd never done that before, so I waved at the air-filled Frosty the Snowman, thankful that Ian had finally taken an interest in the town's celebration. I was sure his wife Martha would have been happy if she'd still been around. Some people thought foul play, but others claimed she'd run off with another man. The latter didn't surprise me then. She seemed to be the wandering type. Good old harmless Ian had probably gotten to feeling lonely. I shook my head and decided to ask Lucy if she would bake him a batch of her famous oatmeal raisin cookies. Our little community didn't have much to offer, but we sure did try to come together for the holidays. 
Passing into town limits, Main Street appeared empty, and every shop along the three-block stretch had been decorated. It was a real treat seeing downtown lit up with all the people distracting from the view. I'd never seen the stretch without at least a few dark buildings. The hardware store belonging to Mr. Roth had shone brighter than every other business front, like Ian Thomas. He'd never participated, though it had been on account of his religious differences. I wonder what had changed his mind and then remembered that sly Mrs. Roth had put an end to Mr. Roth a few months back after she found out that he enjoyed the company of the evening ladies. I'm not one to speak ill of the dead, but if the rumors were true, he would drive out to the city and dip his wick once in a while. When Jake had pulled the small twenty-two pistol out of Mrs. Roth's trembling hand, she claimed it wasn't her who had shot her husband. Or at least she hadn't remembered shooting him. In any case, Mrs. Roth had hung herself in jail. Mayor Wayne had purchased the hardware store in a tax auction, and that was that. Taking in all of the Christmas cheer added to the strange emotion brought about by the white thick flakes. I remembered being a young boy, anxiously awaiting the presents on Christmas morning. It was a memory I didn't know I'd lost, and my eyes were wet from tears. This is what the holidays are about, I said, grinning so much it hurt. This is what it means to be merry. As I made a left off Maine, I turned on the radio and began humming along to that old classic Jingle bells. It hadn't always been great during the holidays. Twenty years ago, the enthusiasm wasn't there. Fact is, the town didn't celebrate the holidays at all. No one could say what changed, but when change came, it was for the better. Each year, more and more took part until practically everyone had become involved. Mr. Everett was the person most responsible for the turnaround. He'd taken the town tradition very serious. After moving in, he had done up his whole house in spectacular fashion, winning the town paper's contest that year, then took home the title the next 21 years in a row. When I turned onto West Street, it was no surprise that the bright flashing lights were coming from Mr. Everett's place. Only instead of red and green Christmas lights reflecting off the falling snow, the colors alternated between red and blue. I wondered what new scene the white-haired, long-bearded man had set up in his yard, but it wasn't decorations flashing. No, it was two police cruisers parked alongside the curb. A small gift for Lucy sat on the passenger's seat, and I imagined her face lighting up when she noticed it tucked under the tree. Frowning, I said, A few more minutes won't matter much now, and pulled into Mr. Everett's driveway. A figure standing in the yard yelled, Hello, Hank. You're out late. I couldn't tell who it was at first. The snow-covered black uniform camouflaged his features, so I squinted and leaned my head out the window. Oh, hi, Jake. Is Mr. Everett all right? Jake walked over to my car door and knelt down to Palaver face to face. Don't rightly know. He's getting up there in age. No offense, of course. I laughed. 
None taken. Just you and your dad out tonight? Didn't need an ambulance? Jake sighed. Well, we found him wandering around in the Campbell's house down the ways. He triggered the silent alarm when he walked in through the back door. I shook my head. Sounds like Alzheimer's. Yeah, sounds like. The Campbells aren't pressing charges, are they? The family had been new to town from some metropolis out west. They moved into the Sanders place after Jack Sanders committed suicide with a circular saw. Neither Mr. or Mrs. Campbell or their teenage son had gone out of their way to introduce themselves, let alone make friends, so none of the town folk had an idea what kind of people the Campbells really were. They're away for the week, Jake said. We'll need to tell them when they get back, but no harm done, so... I wouldn't be surprised if they had a gun, them being from the big city and all. Had they been home, it might have been Mr. Everett's body you'd have to come and collect. Jake nodded. Hey, uh, why don't you head inside, eh? Pop's in there talking with Mr. Everett now. You know, we don't want to send him to the hospital on Christmas. Maybe you could keep an eye on him until his head clears? It's a lot to ask. If you can't, uh, I'll stay myself. I glanced at the gift on the passenger seat once more and whispered, We come together on the holidays. What's that? There's nothing, Jake. Sure, I can stay. Don't mind at all. Jake led the way into Mr. Everett's house. Thanks here, Pop. You can stay. Be right out, Chief Royce said. Jake waved me inside. Go on in. They're just finishing up in the kitchen. Thanks, Jake. Take care, Jake said, then stepped back out into the snow. Mr. Everett had filled his living room with Christmas ornaments from all over the world. Some appeared to be very old and very valuable. I stacked and unstacked a set of antique Russian nesting dolls while listening to Chief Royce in the other room explaining to Mr. Everett that someone needed to stay with him for an hour or so just to make sure he wouldn't go wandering off again. A few moments later, he stepped from the kitchen and tipped the brim of his Stetson. Hank, Junior and I need to get back to watching the roads. It's already half, halfway to nasty out there. I don't want anyone getting stuck. I appreciate your help. Sure thing, Chief. Lucy's already asleep. She won't mind. After giving me a firm pat on the back, he turned toward the kitchen. I'll stop by tomorrow to make sure you're okay, Mr. Everett. You have a Merry Christmas. He shook my hand and slammed the door as he left. I watched out the window as the two police cruisers faded into the snowfall. Mr. Everett walked up behind me and said something under his breath that I couldn't make out, then walked back into the kitchen. I lingered at the window, admiring the Christmas decorations on all the houses along the block. Only the Campbell's place sat dark, like an ink stain on a fine suit. Ain't going crazy, Mr. Everett yelled. I sighed, then went into the kitchen and sat at the table across from him. I don't think you are. Mr. Everett shook his head. One of my ornaments ran off, found her snooping around in that Campbell house. Is that so? Yeah, and I'm glad they weren't home. It would have been very bad, very, very bad. I nodded. In a low whisper, Mr. Everett said, They'd have been killed. 
Yeah, you got luck. Wait, what'd you say? Mr. Everett shook his head. Wasn't nothing important. He pushed his chair back from the table. Need to piss. He left the room through the country door leading to the parlor. The door swung closed but didn't latch. The left side slowly creaked open a few inches. A brilliant kaleidoscope of lights twinkled through the crack. I furred my brow and stood. Pushing the door open, a rainbow of color lit up the walls, the spectacular lights emanating from a massive pine tree in the center of the room. Gold and silver flashed and sparkled, shades of red, blue, and yellow twisted, turned, and collided. Purples, greens, and oranges brightened, dimmed, and merged. Though it was the most wonderful sight these old eyes had ever beheld, it took a moment before I could look directly at the tree. My God, I said, reaching for a branch. The display was more like a shrine to Christmas than a symbol. The surreal lights radiating from these hanging, translucent orbs. I squinted and tried to see how the bulbs worked, but none seemed to be connected to a power source. Between them, dozens of ceramic figurines adorned the pine needle. The lifelike sculptures seemed to move in the shimmering colors. I leaned in closer. The figurines... The figurines were moving. A replica of Paul Vickers reached at me, its tiny arms clutching at the air. The little face twisted in agony as it spat silent curses. I stumbled back. A scream caught in my throat. But it was too late. In the blink of an eye, I'd seen them all. Susie Harper, her head and chest caved in, body twitching. The Diego family, faces blue from carbon monoxide poisoning. Martha Thomas, throat slit, gasping at a breath. Mr. Roth, blood dripping from several bullet holes in his chest. Mrs. Roth, ruptured eyes bulging. Jack Sanders, covered in gore, holding his own intestines. There were others, too. So many others. Beautiful, isn't it? Mr. Everett said from somewhere behind me. I spun toward his voice, saw the flash of a baseball bat, and felt searing white pain through the side of my head before everything went black. I don't know how long I was out, but when I awoke, my whole body buzzed and I couldn't move my arms. Something thick and wet ran down my right ear. Whoa, what in the... Mr. Everett and I were back on the kitchen table. My arms and chest had been duct taped to the chair. You can't hurt him, Mr. Everett said. You can't hurt him. You can't hurt him. My double vision cleared and I focused on a figurine four inches tall, standing in the middle of the table facing Mr. Garrett. Green and red felt draped over its rigid shoulders and a golden Santa toque sat at an angle in its head. Uh, Everett? Mr. Everett shook his finger at the figure. Hank's not one of the naughty people, so you won't take him. You've taken enough anyway. Let me go, I mumbled. No! Mr. Everett screamed. 
I'm not going to kill him either, you little bitch. I heard a small ringing noise as the figure turned around, tiny bells on the tip of its moccasins. The figure, an ugly little creature, cocked its slimy head to the side. It narrowed its forest-green slitted eyes until only black, pin-sized irises were visible. It grimaced, and a mouthful of sharp, pointed teeth ground together like a metallic-like scraping. Then it hissed and jumped from the edge of the table, landing on my chest. Jesus Christ, Every, Get it off me! Get it off! I twisted violently, trying to shake off the creature as it scurried upward, lunging and snapping at my face. Hank, stay still and she won't hurt you. I clenched my fist and held my breath as it held on to my beard and leaned in close to my left eye. Laughed and somersaulted from my face, hit the tabletop, and rolled to its feet, bells jingling. Let me go home to Lucy Everett. I swear I won't say anything to anyone about your pet. Word to God, I won't. She wanted that Campbell boy, the little sneak thief. He's been stealing ever since his family moved to town. Had he been home, she would have lit the house on fire. My jaw dropped. You were going to kill the Campbell boy? No, no, of course not. Mr. Everett laughed and pointed at the creature. She was going to. I tried to stop her. Hell, I always try, but it's no use. If someone in town is a rotten egg, she'll go after him. Boys and girls, too. It don't matter. Hey, don't look at me that way. You know as well as I do that Susie Harper was an insufferable mean brat. She would have grown up to be a terrible person and deserved what she got. They were all bad people. I tugged at my restraints and the arms of the chair creaked. This can't be happening. Argentina, 1954. Mr. Everett said, slouching in his chair. That's when she found me. An honest-to-goodness Christmas elf, Hank. That's what she is. It's a monster. The creature lunged at me again, teeth bared. Mr. Everett slammed his fist on the table. No, leave him alone. The creature pointed at me then at the tree in the parlor, bright light still gleaming. I don't give a damn, Mr. Everett said, waving his hand dismissively. Go tend to the important business in the other room and leave us men alone. The creature hissed. Now, goddammit! The creature raised its fists and shook them above its head. Mr. Everett folded his arms across his chest and stared until the creature climbed down the tablecloth and shuffled into the parlor. He sighed then, said matter-of-factly, "'Those figurines hanging from the tree are the trapped souls of the bad folk.' She used to eat them up quickly, but for the past few years she's been hoarding. You wouldn't believe me if I told you why. I swallowed hard and tested my restraints again. Please, you gotta let me go, I begged. The chair cracked again. Surely he heard it that time. But I knew with one more good pull I would be free. Something shattered from in the parlor followed quickly by another loud crash and another. 
Mr. Everett raised his wrist and looked at his watch. It's time, Hank. Can't stop it now, even if you wanted to. I've been looking over her for decades, and this is the Christmas it's finally happening. He stood slowly, holding a butcher knife in his hand, and took a step toward me. My eyes went wide. What the hell are you doing? Light from the ornaments reflected off the blade as Mr. Everett swung it in a downward arc. I leaned back and heaved my body up just as the tip sliced past my arm. The left side of the chair cracked and broke away, and I put my hand out in an effort to block the next attack. Mr. Everett chuckled and pointed the knife at me. I looked down, confused that my right arm was free then realized he hadn't tried to cut me, only the tape. Done being violent with me, Hank? I'm letting you go. Thank you, I nodded, but tensed as he came closer. Now, about the elf. You saw what she did for this town. How happy these people have been all these years? Unfortunately, now you know why. I always found it funny myself. As he sliced the tape from my ankles, I said... There isn't anything funny about that monster. He walked around to the back of the chair and began to slice through the last of the tape. Well, elves have been known to spread holiday cheer, but who would have guessed they do by removing the bad-hearted and non-joyful bumpkins? Elves can see who we really are, what we've done, even what we're going to do. They know us and they judge us. Another series of crashes came in from the parlor. It's too late for me, but you can tell them if you want, Mr. Everett said. Make sure they all know to be merry, or else an elf might come. The instant the pressure of the tape gave way from my chest, I kicked the chair backward and took off toward the front door. A much louder crash came from in the parlor, sounding like the tree had fallen over and I turned to see the creature standing in the doorway snapping its jaw. The stench of rotten pine needles hit me as I crashed into the front door. It flung outward, frame shattering. I slipped on the porch steps and fell into the snow, ice stinging my hands and face. Mr. Everett yelled from inside the house, Sorry I hit you, Hank. It was my job to protect him. Can't fault me for that, can you? I ran past my car, digging in my pocket for my cell phone. I dialed 911 and pressed the receiver up to my ear, cringing at the pain. Chief, please come quick. Hank, are you okay? Just hurry. I ended the call and ran the two blocks to my house. Lucy was asleep on a sofa, a thick novel resting on her lap. The cold air blowing in swept over her, and she opened her eyes and shivered. She yawned. Oh, dear. You're out late. I slammed the door, locked it, then looked out the window. Through the white mist, I couldn't tell if Mr. Everett or the creature had followed. Lucy gasped. Goodness, Hank, you're bleeding. I ran throughout the house, checking each window for signs of forced entry. No signs of a break-in, but I wish Chief Royce would hurry. You're scaring me. Lucy grabbed my arm, then pressed her warm hands against my cheeks. Tell me, what's going on? I realized how crazy I must have seemed, but there wasn't time for me to explain everything. 
It's Everett, I gasped, still out of breath. Something happened. Chief Royce is on his way. What can I do to help? Nothing, I said, gently taking a rest. I led her back to the sofa. Wait here, and don't let anything in. I saw the question forming on her lips and held up a hand. Please, Lucy, don't open the door no matter what you see or hear out there. She nodded, and I ran off to check the rest of the house. The small creature could have gotten inside a million different ways, so after a quick sweep, I grabbed the Remington from the closet and sat in the recliner next to Lucy, the shotgun lying across my lap. Despite my protests, Lucy went into the kitchen and grabbed the first aid kit. She bandaged up my ear while I kept my eyes glued to the door and my finger firmly on the trigger. By the time she had finished, a series of flashing red and blue lights had appeared outside. A figure walked past the porch window and knocked on the door. I leveled the shotgun and nodded for Lucy to open the door. Good evening, Lou. Chief Royce's eyes widened and he reached for the pistol on his hip while pushing Lucy to the side. I had lowered the gun before he even finished speaking. Chief, are you alone? Chief Royce looked to Lucy, then back at me. What in the blazes happened to your ear, Hank? And why the hell are you pointing a gun at me? Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't know who else was out there. You've been back to Everett's, right? Yeah, we found him. I'm sorry, Hank. We should have called the hospital after all. I shook my head. What? Jake's guessing a heart attack. Everett's dead? Chief Forrest gave me an odd look. You didn't know? But you're the one who... I dropped the gun next to the recliner, then pushed my way past Chief Royce and Lucy. The snowfall had let up enough to see down the street. Outside of Mr. Everett's house, an ambulance had parked next to Jake's cruiser. I ran toward the house, Lucy and Chief Royce chasing after me, yelling for me to stop. When I came to a halt behind the ambulance, the paramedics were loading Mr. Everett's body. I noticed a smug grin etched on his dead face before the doors closed. Jake walked up next to me. At least he made it to Christmas. I checked my watch, 12.30 a.m. Where's that little monster? Did you see it? Jake narrowed his eyes. Does he have a cat or something? I shook my head. Something. Walking into the house, I listened carefully and scanned the room for any movement. The foul odor of dead pine still lingered, but seemed to be fading. I stepped into the dimly lit kitchen, expecting the creature to attack, then noticed that the chair that I'd been duct-taped to was no longer there. Also, the parlor door had been closed. I placed my hand on the wooden handle and hesitated. Chief Royce, Jake, and Lucy had all caught up and stood behind me, sharing worried whispers. I swallowed hard and pushed the door open. The large pine had been overturned, and every one of those brilliantly glowing orbs had been shattered into tiny glass shards. All the figurines had been smashed beyond recognition, most crushed to nothing more than powder. 
Underneath the tree lay the broken kitchen chair. Jake put a hand on my shoulder. That's where we found him. Looked like he tried to hang an ornament and his heart gave out. Must have pulled down the tree on top of himself, poor guy. I choked back a scream. Looking around the room, thoughts racing, I felt the answer clawing at the back of my mind. The crashing, the shattering, the smell of dead pines. And Mr. Everett's final words, all of it rang over and over in my head. Hmm, Jake said, kneeling. Wonder what this sludge is. Lucy smiled. Looks like pine sap to me. Mr. Everett died doing what he loved, Chief Royce said. Hank, thanks for being with him in his final moments. He pointed at my bandaged ear. Looks like that tree got a piece of you as it fell, huh? I guess it rung your bell pretty good. Bells, I said. Somewhere in the distance, I could hear a faint ringing. Lucy hugged me. Why don't we get you to the hospital? You might have a concussion. Bells, I said again. You don't hear him? I stared at the puddle of sap that seemed to have spread toward the back door. I walked across the parlor to the window and scanned the pristine snow, listening for the faint ringing. The world outside was white, still and quiet. The world was wrong. Movement caught my eye. The creature stood at the tree line, watching me from amidst a huge mass of bright green pine needles. It waved, and my blood ran cold. The tree came down hard, I whispered absentmindedly. Caught me in the side of the head, and I think I got a little confused. I turned away from the window. Come on, Lucy, let's go home. I nodded to Chief Royce and Jake, then Lucy and I left them to their work. She didn't ask any questions as we treaded through the snow, and we never talked about that night ever again. Some people in town say it's best to let the past stay in the past. I tend to agree, though every December... I'm reminded of that storm and of what I saw at the edge of those woods. Each year, when the decorations start to go up, I wonder if I should finally tell someone the true secret of Mr. Everett's Christmas ornaments. Now that I'm old and now that Lucy's gone, I think it's finally time. As I stood next to the fallen pine... My eyes followed a sap trail of countless tiny footprints leading into the forest. You see, those figurines weren't the only decorations that should have frightened me. The beautiful, glowing ornaments said something special, too. Those orbs were eggs, and thousands of pine needle baby elves had hatched and fed in the first hour of Christmas morning. Merry Christmas. Henry Van Weiss. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app. Or visit Angie.com today. 
You can do this when you Angie that. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. <laughs> This is Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. I'm Steve Taylor, your host to a horror anthology podcast where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depths and dark corners of twisted imaginations. With carefully curated original tales of terror each week, our deepest rooted fears are brought to the forefront by a diverse cast of voice talent and masterfully eerie sound design that bring these stories to life. We'll give you tales of unnerving encounters with the occult, harrowing hauntings, and sinister seances that show just how darkness knows no bounds. If you're like us here at Chilling Tales and enjoy feeling your stomach filling with dread as dastardly demons dance in your head, make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to subscribe now to always be the first to enjoy the horror show. Thanks for joining me this week for tonight's regularly scheduled Tales of Terror. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Tonight's program has been brought to you by Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly, your host, Otis Jiry. Got a scary tale of your own you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at chillingtalesfordarknights.com for your chance to have me bring your sinister story to life. If you enjoyed what you heard and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment for your chance to be entered into a weekly prize drawing. Your feedback means a lot to us. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, Do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and bell notification icon to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. If you can never get enough spooky stories and can't wait until next week for more and haven't already... Be sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for more than 500 free audio horror stories or the Otis Jiry channel, my own digital home away from home, where you'll find dozens of previously released horror and sci-fi stories from yours truly. If you'd like to connect with or support me and CTFDN, visit the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights Facebook page or at their website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, where you can support our programs by becoming a patron and get access to hundreds of stories, all ad-free. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with another pair of terrifying tales that'll keep you up all night. 
Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.